Hey everyone, this is Matt Lynch for the OnScript Podcast. This is just a quick note to say that we will be back with a new episode on the 9th of January, so keep a keep an eye out for that episode in your feed. But for now, we're going to be re-releasing one of our old episodes that we hope you enjoy. And we hope that you're having a great holiday season, and we will see you in the new year. This is On Script, bringing you conversations about current scholarship on Scripture. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for listening. Welcome to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch today with a very special guest, Professor John D. Levinson, Albert A. List Professor of Jewish Studies at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, Professor Levinson is well known in the world of biblical studies, but just in case you're not familiar with him or his work, or you've been living under a rock for the last 30 years, he's the author of numerous influential works, including Sinai and Zion, Creation and the Persistence of Evil, The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son, Resurrection and the Restoration of Israel, and others, including the one we're focusing on today, Love of God, Divine Gift, Human Gratitude, and Mutual Faithfulness in Judaism. Professor Levinson, thanks for joining OnScript. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So I've been a, a huge fan of yours for for uh, many years and uh, have recommended your, your books to students and really enjoy what you've done. So first of all, I just wanted to thank you for, for all you've written. Oh, you're very welcome. I always like to meet fans. I have so few. I think you have more than you more than you realize, um, and uh, uh, you know as I as I talk to people in in the field, um, you know your, your your work. I think because you you hit the big questions facing biblical studies and uh, some of the big concepts that we encounter in the Hebrew Bible, uh, you, your your work has provided a, a helpful framework for a lot of people. So um, the one of the questions that I just thought would be good for those who may not be in the know about your work. Um, maybe you could help our listeners out by tracing some of the major contours of your scholarly career and some of the, the big influences on you and big questions that have motivated you. Well, when I was in college, I majored in English. Uh, my father, may rest in peace, said, uh, that's a good idea. You already speak it. Uh, <laughs> I got much more, much farther along than if I'd started, let's say, with Chinese. Uh, and uh, but then in graduate school, I went uh, to Harvard uh, in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. I originally came in to do uh, comparative Semitic philology, um, but I soon migrated to the nearby field of biblical studies. The two overlapped uh, to a very high degree. And at Harvard, the focus in those days, is talking about the early 1970s, the focus was uh, the Albright School, very archaeological, very focused on uh, origins rather than developments, uh, very non-theological, very philological and archaeological, uh, and uh, uh, all of which I think was important, all of which was enlightening to me. Uh, but uh, I still had those larger literary and, frankly, theological uh, considerations. I've always been fascinated with the religious meaning of the Bible and the way in which the religious meaning changes over time, both within the Hebrew Bible itself, but also within post-biblical tradition, and informs communities uh, to this day, religious communities uh, to this day. I was never satisfied with simply restricting meaning to the original author's meaning and the original audience's meaning to the extent that we can reconstruct who the original author and who the original audience 
uh, were, which is of course a, a very speculative process. So that was that was my uh, trajectory. I always had strong theological interests and saw biblical studies as something that needed to be done in a linguistically and, and intellectually rigorous way, but also uh, recognizing its theological dimension that endures to this day. Yeah, that that's really helpful to hear about your background in English studies and uh, also doing all the philological stuff, because I, I really don't know another scholar who who's managed as well as you to deal with the so consistently with some of the big, big themes that we face in the Bible, um, but also to be able to unpack them by looking at, at the details. Um, so is that something that that's been intentional in your part to step back and, and say, hold on, let's look at the big picture. Let's, let's go back to the, to the, the fundamentals and say, what do we mean by covenant? What do we mean by love? Uh, and so on. I'd love to say it's intentional and that it's some contribution on my part, but actually it's not intentional. It's just the way my mind works. It's what's important to me. Uh, I uh, I love the details, especially of grammar. Uh, I often have a kind of a nagging guilt that I need to pay more attention to the reams of material that's been written about every word, if not every, every verse, if not every word in the, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, and the vast amount of uh, secondary literature uh, but uh, I do think it's important to keep our eye on the larger issue, which is, I think, why this material is important. I think it's why students take it. Uh, and I think that uh, we ignore those those broad literary and theological themes uh, to our peril in the discipline of biblical studies. An awful lot of biblical scholars major in the minor that make great contributions to specialized material, but never really put it together in any meaningful whole. But I think uh, people expect some sort of meaningful whole, whether it's in biblical studies or any other discipline. Yeah, and do you, do you think that's what's led to maybe, in, in some respects, marginalization of biblical studies as a discipline in, in the university, that it's not seen as connected to the big questions of our time? Right. I think to some extent that is that is the case. Um the way in which a lot of biblical scholarship, the way in which biblical scholarship in general has come to be accepted in the modern secular university, and most modern universities are very, very secular more than they realize, uh, is uh, by ignoring theological and religious claims. Uh, and somebody saying, well, we're a philological historical discipline like any other, which to some degree we are and should be. Uh, on the other hand, I think that does... Uh, raise the question of why would you want to put to have a field like this if i were a dean i might ask why do you want to why should i fund this we have a lot of languages we have a lot of cultures we have a lot of material culture to explore why should we uh, continue to uh, put uh, to privilege yours and that's a very thorny difficult question in modern academia it raises the question of the goals of education the goals of learning uh, and uh, that's something most academics just don't want to face. It's too politically and culturally fraught, but I do think it's an important issue. Yeah, so as as you interact with uh, Jewish and uh, students coming from Jewish and Christian backgrounds and secular backgrounds in, in the university and in the divinity school, what are some of the, the questions and conversations that most engage you in that environment? Well, uh, you know, I have a feeling that most students who take courses in religious subjects, especially religions that are actually, or their descendants are actually practiced today, really do have some sort of spiritual motivation. 
they may not be able to formulate it. They may not want to acknowledge it publicly. It may not be terribly well articulated or analyzed in their own minds. But I do think the, those those uh, uh, deeper and larger uh, issues are on their minds. So what I try to do, and I don't know that I success, I'm successful at this, but what I try to do is to show the way in which the nitty-gritty work of a biblical scholar uh, from grammar and text and so forth uh, through history uh, all the way up to those larger theological considerations, the way that can, in fact, speak to the most important existential issues. Um, if we jump too quickly to the most important existential issues, we engage in homiletics and we seem to have no credibility and uh, we seem to be uh, uh, riding a slipshod over a lot of... Uh, of uh, historical uh, problems that we're just not uh, not facing. So uh, there has to be a kind of uh, a delicacy about it. But I, I do like to think that those larger theological considerations or religious considerations that have animated me in my own life uh, still uh, play a role in the life of a biblical scholar. So so one of the things that uh, you've you've tackled in, in your work is is the relationship between precisely what you're talking about between historical criticism and and a kind of believing community. And so I imagine that those are some of the questions that, particularly in the Div School, come up for your students. And is that something you enjoy helping people navigate, or what's your sort of approach? Well, very rarely does it happen that people seek and effect some sort of counseling or help me navigate them in a, an immediate, personal, existential way around these religious questions. Uh, I won't say it's never happened, but it's it's rare. Uh, usually, uh, of course, in the Divinity School, a large number of our students are planning to go on or hoping to go on for doctoral work in some area of religion, often in biblical studies or in antiquity uh, in some sense. Uh, and uh, I like to try to show the way you can follow issues through uh, a course of time. Uh, you know, how is the Song of the Sea? Shirata Yam of Exodus 15, how is that conceived uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world that it so richly reflects, but then uh, reconceived and uh, extended and deepened, uh, I would think, in rabbinic midrash and other post-biblical literature. Uh, I think I think that's that's probably the the, 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 uh, the best way to go about those things. In other words, in a way that is textually based, historically reliable, but doesn't ignore those larger issues of meaning. Uh, I think a lot of biblical scholars get very, very nervous when those questions of meaning and, and the continuation of a text beyond the culture that produced it are raised. But I think those, those questions are exactly why students at every level uh, take this material. Yeah, and, and I think that, that approach would probably be really helpful um, when thinking about meaning that it's not limited exclusively to the context of production, that meaning can actually happen um, as it's as a text is reappropriated in different environments. Correct. Which is one um, reason why one of the things I've been interested in for a long time is liturgy and the, the, the phenomenon of worship and the use of texts in worship and liturgy over the course of a liturgical year, which is very different from simply looking at it as, a, as something on a, a piece of paper or parchment or whatever in front of your face, a, f a physical visual object. It's a performed uh, text, and it has some performance uh, in life itself. Mm. So, so you've uh, 
You've written uh, this book, The Love of God, Divine Gift, Human Gratitude, and Mutual Faithfulness in Judaism. And, and I really like the double sense. I, I guess that's intentional, where love of God refers to God's love for humanity in Israel and Israel's love for God. So what's the big question that motivated this study? And why did you feel like this book needed to be written? Well, for any uh, observant Jew, this commandment to love the Lord your God uh, is recited uh, every uh, every morning and every evening. The, the Talmudic law requires male Jews uh, to recite this every morning and every evening of their life. It's a very key commandment. Obviously, in the Gospels, it then appears as the key commandment. And uh, But moderns, I think, have very little sense of what to do with it. The average modern secular person doesn't know what to do with it. When they think of love, Modern Western people tend to think of uh, eros, of sexual love, as the highest form of love, as the archetype of all loves. And well, what do you do with this incorporeal deity? Uh, what, what does that have, have to do with anything? Or they think of love as something that's purely uh, involuntary, it's something that happens to you. Think of that expression, to fall in love, a purely involuntary activity, like falling into a pit in the ground. Well, I would argue that if you think of love as solely uh, involuntary and passional and or sentimental, uh, uh, you miss what it is in the Bible. It is a commandment. There are ways to fulfill the commandment. That's what Deuteronomy means in that famous verse in Deuteronomy 6.5. And uh, I thought it was important to explore it. It's certainly a very major theme in classical uh, Judaism and, and uh, really in, in, in rabbinic tradition to this day. It's certainly a very important theme in, in Christianity. But somehow modern Jews and Christians, I think, often tend to, to ignore it by, you know, by either paying no attention to it or radically misconceiving it in a very treacly, sentimental way or an overly erotic way. So I thought it was important to try to retrieve what these classical Jewish sources have meant by the term. Yeah, and hearing that uh, you had you had studied with William Moran um, helps helps me understand why you might be interested in the subject because you wrote that famous uh, article on on love and Deuteronomy. Correct. Uh, Bill Moran was a professor at Harvard in the early seventies when I was in graduate school together with the late to Frank Moore Cross and others, and. Uh, he, uh, Moran, wrote this famous essay, I think it's called The Ancient Near Eastern Background of the Love of God in Deuteronomy in 1963. And when it came out, in, when I first read it in my first article in 1971, it really had a galvanizing effect on me. It brought a lot of things together and enlightened a lot of material uh, to me. And anyone that reads this book, The Love of God, can clearly see, especially in that first chapter, that I'm heavily indebted to Moran on that subject. Yeah, so so for Moran, and, and as you express it in the chapter, uh, love is something that can be commanded. So God, you know, commands Israel, you shall love the Lord your God. So so how, what does that require of us then in conceptualizing love to see a love that can be commanded? Well, what Moran, what Moran showed is that this love of God in Deuteronomy, I think it's more general than Deuteronomy, but specifically in Deuteronomy, uh, is uh, a term for the service of a covenantal lord, of a suzerain, to use that terminology, uh, the, the service that a vassal uh, must uh, uh, provide to his lord in covenant. So it's a relational phenomenon in, within a, a context of 
international diplomacy, a greater king demands the exclusive service of the lesser king. So there are specific acts. In Deuteronomy, it's the mitzvot, it's the commandments of the Torah, as Deuteronomy understands the word Torah, uh, that the people of Israel are to do in response uh, to God, uh, showing the God of Israel uh, their uh, undivided loyalty. If the term monotheism means anything in the context of Deuteronomy, what it means is that exclusive service, that undivided exclusive service uh, owed by the people of Israel uh, to their Lord in covenant, uh, the God who took them out of Egypt uh, and uh, sustained them in the wilderness, continues to sustain them, and has given them the gift of the land. That's what the uh, term monotheism refers to, exclusive service, and the origins of that lie in the exclusivity of that covenantal relationship. Uh, but uh, in Deuteronomy, the way in which one fulfills the, that norm to love God is to observe those specific commandments. The commandments may appear to us to be mindless rituals that we can't make any sense of, or they may appear to be pieces of law, of, of, of dry law, but within the Deuteronomic covenantal framework, law has been embedded within a structure, a personal relationship of covenant, and that covenantal structure means that observing those norms is an act of personal service, and conversely, Violating those norms is breach of covenant. It's an act of infidelity. And you can then see how this uh, easily plays into the use of the prophets make of this theology, in which when Israel strays, when the people of Israel stray from the God of Israel, they're committing adultery. They're proving faithless in marriage. They're doing an act of marital infidelity. It's, a very, it's, it's really a, a play on the same underlying covenantal metaphor. Yeah, so, so covenant... Um is is inextricable from the biblical conception deuteronomic conception of love and i thought that was really helpful how you you probed the different familial relationships out of which the the notion of covenants derived so you know i think in my mind i had deuteronomy pegged solely as a kind of ancient near eastern treaty background covenant but there are also other father son kind of familial relationships, man and woman. And so there are all these all these metaphors in the Bible for getting at uh, this love between God and, and Israel that really um, thicken um, our conception of it. Yes, that's right. I think Deuteronomy is misconceived if one thinks that the blessings and, co- and curses that really are mentioned often in the book, and especially in the uh, great chapter uh, 28, that that exhausts their understanding of the relationship as if you, as if it's a self-interested act, you go into the relationship um, in hoping to get a gain, a, a blessing, a reward, and, and hoping to avoid a punishment, a, a curse, uh, some sort of deficit inflicted on you. It's uh, the love language, and I think the phenomenon of love does not lend itself to that kind of game theory, whatever you want to call that, maximization of, of gain notion. There's an element of generosity, of giving, of self-sacrifice involved in the covenantal love concept. I would say in any profound love concept, that's the case. And uh, Deuteronomy primarily, I think this language of blessing and curse is primarily intended as a rhetorical device to to make a wayward people, as Deuteronomy would say, a, uh, a stiff-necked people, uh, 
uh, return, uh, turn around, return, get back onto the path, and and cling to the Lord their God. These are all term, this is all terminology you find very uh, richly attested in, in Deuteronomy. So that it's not that the motivation, the immediate motivation, or the highest motivation is gain, pursuit of gain and avoidance of pain. It's the, the highest motivation is uh, intimacy and a relationship of love and mutual giving and mutual service between God and Israel. Yeah, and and I, I thought that was really helpful that in your description of Deuteronomy, you, you went to uh, Deuteronomy 6 and 7 where it talks about all the benefactions that Israel had received and that that, that is the kind of driver that should motivate Israel's response of gratitude in keeping the covenant. So, um, so God has has given all these things to Israel. He's given them a gift, and the question then is: the, the ball's in their court. How are you going to respond to the fact that God has given you a gift? That's right. It's a, that Israel, uh, without negotiating it or deciding it in advance, has found themselves as the beneficiary. Uh, of their very existences and owing to a promise of God. And the gift of the land, the exodus, the reason for the exodus itself is not that God has some sort of principled opposition to slavery. The reason for the, uh, the exodus is God's commitment to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them a land. Uh, and, and as Deuteronomy 7 would have it, he fell in love with the ancestors with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and made an oath to them. And now he has to fulfill it. So he gives their descendants the land he promised to give the descendants of those three patriarchs. So Israel finds themselves as a beneficiary. I think that's the way real life is. We find ourselves as the beneficiaries of all kinds of things that we didn't devise, even if we have a great talent. Maybe we have a great talent for, I don't know, violin. I, I personally don't. I have Van Gogh's ear for music. But but uh, maybe we have a great talent for violin or for math or for languages. Well, we didn't generate that talent. We may have developed it. We may have worked on it. We may have refined it. Uh, but uh, we all have been given things beyond what we deserve. We find ourselves in a situation defined by our gifts. But those gifts, in turn, imply a relationship. And a relationship is two-sided. So to say Israel's service of God is radically separate from God's love of Israel would be a tremendous mistake. The love relationship goes both ways. It's, as you point out, it's the love of God in both directions. The objective uh, genitive, Israel's love for God, but also the subjective genitive, God's love for Israel. Those two things are intertwined. They ricochet back and forth throughout uh, this literature. Uh, this is at, at odds with, I think, a, a very... Uh, contemporary concept of ethical, moral, legal obligation that people have in the, in the West, namely that uh, we only have those obligations we've signed on to, uh, whatever you want to call this, radical volitionism, voluntarism, or whatever. All relationships are contractual in nature. You're not obligated by anything unless you agreed to it in advance. But uh, this notion in, in the Bible is quite different. It's that you uh, find yourself uh, benefiting from a relationship that you never agreed to, you were too young, you, you weren't even there. You, Israel, were not even there when you're, and God fell in love with your ancestors and made them that promise that resulted in the exodus, resulted in the gift of the land. And now you in turn have, have an obligation. Real relationships are bilateral, they're mutual, and at their best, they involve uh, gift giving uh, back and forth. Uh, and uh, that is in a sense the underlying theology of the, of the love of God in Deuteronomy. And, and reading your book uh, reminded me of a, of a of a book I read recently 
by John Barclay called Paul and the Gift. And, and in that book, he, he talks about uh, the idea of charis or gift uh, in the New Testament and, and um, contemporary uh, Jewish literature. And, and one of the things that he points out is that in the history of interpretation of grace in Paul, there, there have been various moves away from a Pauline conception of how grace worked, and particularly around the, the notion of expectations with gift giving. So he, he talks about how for Paul, the, the, the idea that God gave a gift in Christ is, is something where God gives a gift irregardless of status, but he expects something in response. And, and I think that goes against a lot of modern conceptions of, of how a gift should work, that a pure gift is something that doesn't, you know, there's no strings attached or something like that. But, but I think that's really what's going on in Deuteronomy, too, as you point out, that, that God gives something, and it comes with expectations precisely because, and it's not just that he, he wants, um, he feels like he's just owed something, it's, it's that he wants to forge a relationship and so a gift given without an expectation would be a gift given without any relational dimension. But Yeah, the, the way I would put it is God does not give, give his gifts anonymously. Yeah, yeah, there there is a personal God who's given those gifts, and therefore people are in a relationship with the recipients, are in a relationship uh, with that God. I wouldn't say he gives it with strings attached. I wouldn't say it's a manipulation Right. Uh, it's not exactly like that. It's more that it's it's a it's a free gift that people don't deserve. But what what happens when you find yourself in the status in the state of having received a gift that you didn't deserve? Uh, can you treat the giver as if he or she were just uh, any old person and hadn't given the gift? Uh, that would seem to be uh, wrong. That would seem to be an act of faithlessness and infidelity and ingratitude. In and of itself, that's why I like. To, that's why the subtitle has the word gratitude in it, because I think that gratitude and love are very closely connected to each other, and uh, this is a theme I think is often missed. Yeah, I I thought your your treatment of that was really interesting, um, and you, you had a quote on on um, uh, can't remember the page actually, but you, you talk you talk about the 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 idea that that gratitude is a is a kind of more is a moral category. Um, and that a failure to respond in gratitude uh, suggests a, a kind of moral deficiency on on the part of someone who's received it. And I think, I think for me, that's like one of the really helpful contributions of your book is is setting out that framework that love involves God giving gifts, and that creates a condition that you just have the humans then have to respond to. Yeah. Like, it creates we, a, we it creates a new, it creates a new situation. It creates a new uh, relationship. And then the question is, do you continue that, that uh, relationship? Uh, there is something profoundly wrong with the recipient of a gift, not acknowledging it and relating and continuing to relate to the giver as if the gift had not taken place. And that, that, that I think is what's going on here. So, so one of the um, other things that um, might sound odd or even irreverent to speak about God's love for us and our love for God um, in terms of uh, erotic, in erotic terms, as you as you put it. Um, so, I was just wondering if you could you could explain what you mean then. So, we've talked about the the kind of mutual obligations and expectations side of of love, but what about the the erotic dimension of love between God and His people? How does that work? 
Well, Moran in that famous article was eager to differentiate the covenantal love of God in Deuteronomy from the erotic love of, uh, for example, the book of Hosea. But you find it really throughout the prophets, Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you find it in Second Isaiah and elsewhere. Uh, but I think if you think about it for a minute, if the notion is exclusive fidelity, exclusive loyalty in a close personal relationship, well, that's very much the relationship of husband and wife, especially in the ancient Near East. Uh, and uh, uh, it, you might say, well, but they didn't practice monogamy. Uh, ancient Israel doesn't actually have any uh, any requirement of monogamy, nor did Talmudic Judaism in antiquity. Uh, but I think you have to be careful about this. Uh, the the husband might have more than one wife, but the wife, which is to say, in this case, the, the people of Israel, have to have uh, a, an exclusive relationship to the husband. Uh, in that sense, it wasn't uh, polyandry. Uh, but even the relationship of polygamy, I think it's very interesting, and, and I, I make a point of this in the book because I don't think people have noticed this, that within this covenantal metaphor, God uh, does not have any wife other than Israel. Uh, if God is, is conceived uh, to some degree like a, a rich dude, rich dudes like Abraham uh, have, uh, or David or Solomon have multiple wives. But this God has no other wife so far as we can see. It's, it seems like a very uh, a monogamous relationship with uh, intense fidelity. And fidelity is, a, is, a, is so great that God cannot give up Israel when she strays. Uh, he can punish her in ways that us uh, seem as biblical punishments generally do to be uh, excessive or brutal, uh, but it's in the service of renewing and re the relationship and restoring the family and uh, causing love to return. Uh, so when you get to the prophets, they, uh, they bring up this metaphor of God and Israel as husband and wife. Uh, but it's interesting. It's always a marriage that was uh, that was once uh, a beautiful thing, went sour. They sought other suitors. They proved uh, unfaithful, uh, and, and and now they're in a situation of something close to divorce, separation, or divorce. But then it's renewed. There's a redemption. There's a renewal. There's a restoration, and uh, love returns. The love of God does not define the current state. Israel's love for God does not define the current state. Current state is more like two people separated and uh, uh, moving towards uh, divorce or even in, in, in just newly divorced. Uh, but it defines uh, the renewal of the relationship, uh, the, the, the past, the idyllic past, and the redeemed uh, future. I think that's true in some degree in Deuteronomy too. I think Deuteronomy is trying to persuade Israelites to uh, to accept and renew this relationship and to cease being a stiff-necked people and to come back into the relationship with God by observing those commandments of the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic uh, Torah. Uh, now, when you get to the rabbinic period with uh, the, the Song of Songs is conceived as the love song of God in Israel, uh, and so different verses in the Song of Songs are then uh, decoded in terms of moments in the history of redemption. Moments, you know, this is what God said uh, to Israel at the sea. This is what Israel said to God at the sea. This is what God said to Israel at Mount Sinai. This is what Israel said to God at Mount Sinai and so forth. Finding moments in the biblical narrative to which the different verses in this intense erotic love song, the Song of Songs, would uh, apply. Uh, and uh, if I may say something more about that for a moment, 
I think that, you know, some people object. They say, well, this is an allegorical reading, a spiritualized reading of the Song of Songs. It voids the Song of Songs of its intense, bodily, erotic, passionate character. I can see why they say that, but I think they need to be careful. The word allegory, allegory to me implies abstraction. They don't find that these verses have their meaning. These speeches, the Song of Songs, have their meaning in some sort of philosophical abstractions. They have their meaning in terms of a biblical narrative at the moment when they were said between these two lovers. Uh, and second, in rabbinic midrash, in the way in which the rabbis of the Talmud read this, the, this uh, Song of Songs enables them to find the love of God for Israel throughout the Torah and throughout history, and not simply uh, in, in any given text where it may be explicit. So you can look at the, uh, the early parts of Exodus, and where God is taking Israel out of Egypt. There's nothing there in the book of Exodus about God operating on the basis of love. That's why he did it. Uh, but when you read the Song of Songs as applying to the Exodus, then you find love, passion, eros uh, in the book of Exodus, too. You find that's, that's uh, the deeper motivation. So the love song of God in Israel then is the lens through which the whole biblical narrative comes to be seen in rabbinic Judaism. And there's something similar that goes on in Christianity, as you know. Uh, it becomes the, the song of songs becomes the love song of, of Christ and his church, uh, or it becomes the love song of God and the individual soul. That also happens in medieval Judaism, by the way. It becomes the relationship of the individual soul uh, to uh, God. Uh, so, on the one hand, it's not the immediate plain sense of the Song of Songs, but it's a very theologically and religiously productive reading. Yeah, and I, I think that, that that part of the book was something that, that challenged me personally, because I, I had always taken uh, the um, more midrashic or allegorical interpretations as sort of repressive discomfort <laughs> around the idea of talking about sex. And so uh, they have to move it into some other domain. But you had, you had this, uh, a, a great quote in there, and I can't remember it exactly offhand, but you, you talk about how, how um, humans are more than physical beings. And so then the act of sex is more than a physical act. And so it, has, it already has a larger, some other significance to it. And it, and it just reminded me, too, of... Of in the, in the New Testament with Paul, he's talking about marriage, and then all of a sudden he jumps and he says, "I'm talking about the relationship between Christ and the church." And it's like, how, how did you make that leap? But but I think that that connection is already built into the conception of marriage, so that the move that seems like a huge jump to me as a modern was. Was a was a smooth transition for, for yeah. That's the, very uh, well put. Yeah, I think it was a much smoother transition for them uh, than for us. Yeah, what you're talking about is this section from the end of chapter four. I call it "Sex as Symbol," mm -hmm. and uh, my uh, question is: uh, if you say no, 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 uh, this is all really about sex. Well, my question is: what is sex about? What does sex point to? Is sex the highest reality? Uh, this is a very uh, problematic uh, claim. Uh, it seems to my mind that within this uh, biblical and Jewish and Christian framework, uh, sex is about a much larger thing, which is a more enduring and encompassing relationship that's far more than just a set of physiological processes having to do with procreation or whatever. 
so that it's not that the larger relationship is somehow uh, sexless or bodiless or has no erotic dimension. It's the other way around. It's that in order to understand the meaning of those bodily relationships, you have to understand what the higher relationship is that they symbolize. So I think these figures in late antiquity, Jewish and Christian figures in late antiquity, who interpret the Song of Songs in this so-called allegorical way, I think in their mind, they're raising the significance of sex. They're not denying it. They're raising it uh, by by connecting it to the most enduring and significant romance in history in the Jewish context. It's the romance between the God of Israel and the people of Israel. Yeah, so, so I have to change my view now. On my uh, So I've got my stone edition of the uh, Tanakh here. And um, yeah, right. in Song of Songs, if they, in the main text, they just put the allegorical reading of Rock. Exactly, yeah, that's right. Well, because they say, they're very explicit about this, hmm. they say that the uh, plain sense is spiritually dangerous in the plain sense in a sense is is a kind of mistranslation the literal accurate translation you might say is a mistranslation because it enables you too easily to miss the uh, larger theological meaning i like to think that there is an inter that we're sophisticated enough that we can recognize the Con- the, the meaning of the song songs as a standalone composition, which is not about the romance of God in Israel, but also understand that within the larger structure, which is the Hebrew Bible, uh, it in fact and rather naturally lends itself to that uh, context, to that reading. And the reason it lends itself to that reading is the prominence of the romance image in the prophets, of the, of the marriage metaphor for the God-Israel relationship in the prophets. Yeah, exactly. And I think your, your point about the connection between the, something that's a very physical process that doesn't look like it has a higher spiritual meaning or something like that um, plays out in the example you gave from Ezekiel, where Ezekiel talks about God finding Israel in the wilderness as a young woman and falling in love with her, taking pity on her. And if you go back to Exodus, you don't see Israel as you know, depict the relationship depicted in those terms, but Ezekiel can reframe it in, in the, in terms of a romantic relationship. uh, Because again, I think, I think that's just an easier move for them to make. That's right. It's a, it's a passional sexual type relationship, which, uh, which uh, reflects something much larger than mere physiology or mere, bodily uh, love. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think that's right. I think, I think that's true uh, throughout the prophets that use that metaphor. But that metaphor leads very naturally, I think, into this particular reading of the Song of Songs. Yeah. And then um, I thought your your reading of Ezekiel too was really interesting. Um, and I, I'm guessing that comes out of your, was that your doctoral dissertation on Ezekiel? Yeah, my, yeah, my, my uh, doctoral dissertation was on Ezekiel 40 through 48, the, the new temple and the new liturgy, uh, New liturgical calendar at the end of Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ezekiel is a difficult book, uh, and everything is baroque and more developed in Ezekiel than, than in its sources. Mm-hmm. Than it is in its sources, and certainly uh, his his uh, descriptions, his the sexual sort of material he has in chapter sixteen and chapter twenty three. On the one hand, it's 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 pretty gross. It's pretty pretty vulgar, pretty gross. On the other hand, uh, it makes its point uh, very powerfully. And the point again is this notion of God's absolute fidelity based in some degree on his honor and on his sense of the holiness of his name such that he's going to redeem Israel and restore Israel whether Israel likes it or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to move on to to talk about um, 
some of the later chapters uh, in your book where you get into the idea of a mystical ascent and and this this move toward intimacy with God and and union with God that you find in in medieval uh, Judaism and. It, it, one of the things I, I wondered was, is this something that you're trying to recover for uh, the Jewish circles within which you move, um, or w- what was behind this? Well, I don't know that I'm trying to recover it for any circles. It's not as if I have a, a following or an audience or whatever that, that would be receptive uh, to such things. Uh, but I do think that the notion of personal spirituality and the the sense of the power of this idea of the love of God is something that's been uh, uh, largely, not completely, but largely lost in, in the contemporary Judaism. Um, you know, Jews tend to be very secular, uh, and uh, they tend to be uh, uh, rather non-theological, and uh, the many Jews who are very, very educated on all kinds of things, on science and medicine and business and all kinds of things, are quite illiterate on Judaism and on these classical Jewish sources, which is what, what the classical tradition says is the most important thing to study. So I, I like to, to, uh, to consider the, uh, to, to, to represent to people the, uh, this religious life as these figures, especially like Bachiev and Pakuda in the Middle Ages, uh, present uh, a, a life whose highest uh, stage uh, is, is, is the result of a spiritual ascent to the, to the love of God. So he has a description uh, of this uh, in a book called The Duties of the Heart. He has uh, a very elaborate description of what the life of uh, the lover of God is like. And uh, it's, it's rather different from what most contemporary Jews would think. Uh, most contemporary Jews think there's no ascetic dimension in Judaism. Uh, whereas uh, Bachi makes the point, I think it's quite uh, legitimate, that uh, with any form of asceticism, what one has to ask is not what has been renounced, but in pursuit of what has it been renounced? What's the goal that leads to the renunciation? So in his mind, uh, worldliness, concern with, I don't know, our our ordinary uh, practical affairs and so forth can easily lead us uh, to forget uh, God, to forget the love of God, and to uh, lose this sense of gratitude that we were talking about earlier. And so he presents a set of spiritual exercises and meditations and so forth that people should engage in in order to recover those lost elements. I was really surprised at one thing you wrote along those lines on page 164. And my surprise comes from it being 180 degrees opposite of my experience in the church within Protestantism and um, particularly in conservative Protestant circles. Uh, you said that in most Jewish circles today, the strong emphasis on private personal devotion is seldom, if ever, heard. If prayer is stressed at all, what is highlighted is usually the communal and social dimension. So for me growing up in the church, it's been all about, typically, it's been all about me and God and my personal devotional life with him and my relationship. And so I, it just struck me that the the place where I grew up in the church was going a complete different direction. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of American Protestantism is very individualistic and very emotionalistic. And uh, whereas I think a lot of contemporary Judaism, uh, the extent to which people involve, are involved with religion and all, they think of it in terms of, I don't know, familial identity, uh, ancestral loyalty, uh, 
faithfulness to the victims of persecution, especially in the Holocaust, uh, uh, support and identification with the uh, state of Israel as it's beleaguered by uh, by enemies uh, and that sort of thing, very kind of political, social issues and questions of personal theology and personal theological practice uh, are, are of less importance for, you know, again, they're exceptions. Um, so I think in that sense, it's, it's a radically different uh, sort of understanding. Judaism by its nature, I think, is, is more communal, certainly than American Protestantism on average on, in general is. Uh, I think classical Christianity actually was much more communal than contemporary Protestantism is. Uh, but uh, uh, it's possible to be too communal, so communal that the question of internal personal motivation uh, falls out of the picture. I think that's a very dangerous stage. I think that's a stage that is, is, is uh, really not authentic Jewishly. So, so one of the uh, other questions you asked there toward, toward the end of your book, stepping back and, and looking uh, especially at Maimonides and the other medievalists who were in some ways influenced by Aristotle and, and um, right. the ideas that God is perfect, incorporeal, uh, immovable, and passive, and all those things, uh, is, is the question, what kind of God loves, you know, and can a perfect God love? And I just thought it was interesting to hear you talk about uh, that debate because it reminds me of similar discussions that happen in in theology and Christian theology about the impassibility of God and whether God has emotions and how those play in. So so, so you know giving your prior your focus on covenant what's your conception of how Jews navigate the biblical portrait of a, of a God with emotions and passions and so on and these these philosophical challenges. <laughs> Well, these, these, as you say, are very big philosophical challenges, and that question of divine impassibility, can God feel, can God suffer, and those have been around since antiquity. It's uh, inevitable when a scriptural, narrative-based religion like Judaism or Christianity, uh, or in large measure Islam, interacts with that classical Greco-Roman philosophical framework. Um, So uh, in the Middle Ages, the question in these Jewish sources is, is really around the question of the perfection of God. I mean, uh, for Maimonides, talk about God, a God having feelings, a God uh, loving or whatever, getting angry or whatever. To him, that suggests a deficit. Right. It says there's something wrong. There's like a vacuum inside God, but God is, is always full. God is, is sufficient. Uh, how could God have a, a deficit? So within that kind of Aristotelian framework, uh, this, there's the majesty and greatness of God is diminished, are diminished if we see him as having feelings and emotions, and therefore there can be no real subjective love of God, namely God a loving. Uh, but uh, other people I talk about there, Hastai Kreskas uh, and Joseph Albo later in, in, in the Middle Ages, as they actually, uh, loving is a characteristic of, of perfection, uh, and that uh, a God who doesn't love is, in a sense, an imperfect God. Uh, I, I would put it this way. I would say if you meet somebody who doesn't feel gratitude, doesn't love, doesn't communicate, uh, who, who doesn't interact, we would say this person is profoundly impaired. We would probably say some form of, God forbid, uh, autism or whatever, uh, we certainly wouldn't say this person, this is perfect. 
we tend to take our models of perfection from machines and the laws of science and things that are impersonal and invariable. But in personal relationships, that model of perfection is really a model of imperfection. Uh, and it, so what has to be recovered is a sense of the perfection of, de- uh, of God that can involve his interaction, his feelings, his relationships, uh, his having favorites. Uh, no human being loves everybody. You may love humanity in the abstract, but you love your wife or your father or your mother or your or your child differently from the way you love the rest of humanity. Uh, if you say, no, no, God can't possibly do that. God, there can't be any such thing as election, as chosenness. God has to love everybody the same. Well, is that a model of perfection or imperfection? If someone has no particular familial relationships, is that a sign of, of a person having reached a high degree of perfection or a person having failing, having fallen short of a very fundamental human ideal? Uh, so that, that's why I bring up, one reason I bring up a figure like Martin Buber, for whom dialogue and personal interaction is, is the, a mark of the highest spirituality and uh, in which the lines of dialogue intersect in what he calls the eternal thou, namely uh, a God. One of the articles, actually, that you you've written, um, the the Universal Horizons of Biblical Particularism, uh, was something that was really influential in my um, dissertation, and and I think I can see you sort of returning to these themes of God's particular love for Israel, and how that fits into God being the God of the cosmos and of of all nations. That's right. I think the theme of election, as Christians tend to call it, or chosenness, as Jews tend to call it, I think it looks different if you put it into this context of love, of familial relationships, of romance. Mm -hmm. Is there some injustice to all the other women in the world that you love your wife? Is there some injustice to all the other children in the world that you love your children? Is it a renunciation of the other children in the world that you love your child? Uh, I would say no. I would say that... I, that I tend to agree. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope your wife and children agree. Uh, but but uh, you see, in other words, if you, if you understand election as tied up with love, with God's mysteriously falling in love, then uh, as opposed to putting it into a context of justice, distributive justice, how come this one gets more than that one? I, I think it's much more understandable. And certainly these biblical texts are much more understandable. Hmm. I think that's a a really good place to wrap up our discussion. And we've covered a lot today, but I just want to thank you for uh, taking the time to discuss your book, um, Love of God, Divine Gift, Human Gratitude, and Mutual Faithfulness in Judaism. And we're going to have links to that on our website, so you can uh, buy the book. I highly recommend it, and there's much more that we weren't able to discuss. So, Professor Levinson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I was honored to have this discussion with you. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Onscript.study.